Welcome to DesignWise, a podcast about architecture, art, and interior design. I'm your host, Jessica Shabbat. Today on DesignWise, I'm very excited to introduce Michael J. Lee. Michael is a renowned interior photographer based in the Boston area. His work has been featured in numerous magazines, including New England Home, Design New England, and Boston Home. He is the go-to photographer for many area interior designers. So let's go to that conversation. So thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me, Jess. I am so excited that you are here today. I'm more excited. (laughs) So we can talk about your experience and your life and what you like to do. Is this going to be like Oprah? Are you going to get me to cry? Oh my gosh, I would love it if you cried. (laughs) Could we please work that in? (laughs) All right, so we're going to start every single podcast with the same questions, which is where did you grow up and when did you realize you loved creating? (laughs) I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Um, My mother was a single mom. It was me and my brother. Um, I didn't know anything about design until I was probably 18. Um, it just wasn't a part of our life. My mother worked two, three jobs sometimes. I cooked for my brother. You know, I started working when I was 14. I didn't really do very well in school because I didn't really have time for school. Um, I did like to draw and my mother would take me to open houses in the better part of town and... I loved to sit in the car and, and before we went in and just like sketch what I thought it would be like the house and mm-hmm. then of course I never believe it was wrong every time but <laughs> I learned right like room placement why rooms are a certain way what works and what doesn't work and mm-hmm. so that led me to apply for architecture hmm. so my mother grew up in Glasgow Scotland and she was a hairdresser she actually worked with Vidal Sassoon um, they did stage shows, um, but when she was about 15, she wanted to be an architect. Mm. And her parents brought her to the Glasgow School of Art, and on the tour, there was a male nude who was being sketched, and her father said that was that. Really? <laughs> and he wouldn't he let her go done. to school for architecture. <laughs> he was done. So my mother really encouraged me when she knew that I wanted to be an architect. Um, my grades weren't really good, and so you know it was no surprise that pretty much everyone turned me down. Mm, arch- architecture school is really competitive to get into. Yeah, but um, the director of the design department at Wentworth, Jim Gius, um, somehow someone in the architecture department submitted my res my application and drawings and things to Mr. Gius, and he wrote to me, and he thought that interior design could be a profession that I could excel at Mm -hmm. and my first thought when I read that letter was what the fuck is an interior designer (laughs) I mean isn't that like your mother she takes you to Macy's and buys you sheets (laughs) or something I had no idea what it was and this is kind of crazy when I think about it now I didn't even visit the school I just said yes I'll go and that August my mother and I got on a plane flew to Boston. I'd never even been to Boston. Wow. Didn't have any family or friends here. Didn't know anybody going to Boston. My mother stayed for th- three days, I think, and left, and that was it. And I was here until the first break at Thanksgiving. So you went to a new town that you'd never been to, all by yourself, without your mom, to do a school that you had not, you weren't entirely certain what it even was. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that must have been a big adjustment. It was, and there was a lot of challenges on the way. My mm-hmm. first semester, I got mono. 
Oh my gosh, wow. And I was I went to the emergency room and the doctor told me to drop to drop out and go home because yeah. this I wouldn't be able to go to school for at least a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I told my mother and she sent me this um, ridiculous care pre- she's very healthy and into nutrition so she sent me all these vitamins and all these kinds of foods that I should eat mm-hmm. and I literally was better in 10 days really wow um it worked um and so I didn't I missed about a week of school did that have a negative impact on that first semester or do you just kind of you know grin and bear it and try I, I've never had the luxury to um allow things to to get in my way Mm -hmm. i i just i have to keep moving forward or i just have to right that's a good way to be i mean yeah you're successful yeah i guess (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i struggle when when people say that to me so did you after you went to school and you kind of figured out what interior design was did you like it in school like, did you grow to like... I did, and I I didn't. Wentworth is a great school, and I loved the co-op program. I mean, that's honestly how I got my first job is through the co-op program. Mm-hmm. I had two teachers there, Rachel Pike and um, Ann Lennox, who were just sort of took me under their wing. Ann Lennox hired me to do an ad for her husband, who was Jim Sersich, the mm-hmm. upholstery company, Partners in Design. And that ad ended up on the front page of the ASID directory for 1992. And I sent my resume to everyone in that directory. Mm-hmm. And Celeste Cooper wrote me back because she used Partners in Design and she had called them and, and Anne gave me this incredible um, reference. That's great. And I mean, literally, without that, I never would have gotten in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, with anyone and I worked there for three semesters and then when I graduated Celeste hired me Mm full-time so you worked for Celeste while you were still in school yeah yeah and then did you how is that managing school and working at the same time you probably didn't have a choice I was the same way I had to work and go to school at the same time but it's hard it was fine yeah you do what you do when you kind of get some real life experience you know while you're in school Right. Learning the technical stuff, you learn right. how it really works right. outside of school. And I mean, with Celeste, she um, she did Kips Bay, and I was heavily involved in that. And I actually was the person in the room every day, working the room, talking to people. That was like one of the most incredible experiences. I met these amazing, famous New York designers who I had you know, started to learn about and started to appreciate. Um, we did a space at Takashimaya in New York, which was this incredible building um, on Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, she had this amazing house in La Jolla, California that she did. Um, we just, there was just really amazing um, stuff. And she was just fun. And I have great admiration for her. Um, Lucian Allaire, who worked there as well, her and I and Lucian would go to her apartment and we would like do shots of vodka and sketch <laughs> and like just it was fun. It was an experience that I'll never forget. So how did you, how did you really like take your experience with Celeste and 
like move to the to the next thing you did? Well, what happened was Celeste had closed the Cooper Group, mm-hmm. or sold it, I should say, to um, Repertoire. And she worked with Rick Graflo, who owned Repertoire. And so Lucian, Lucian and I and a few others sort of all lost our jobs immediately. Mm-hmm. Lucian went to work for Mr. Hodgins. Someone else, um, her name was Jennifer, went to work for Beerly Drake. And I ended up working for Mr. Fitzgerald. So we all got placed at the top mm-hmm. firms. And working with Richard Fitzgerald could not have been more night and day, but in a positive way. You know, mm-hmm. Celeste and Richard are could not be more different, but that allowed me to learn this incredibly broad expanse of knowledge about design. My design vocabulary is just very strong because of that mm-hmm. history and because of all the lessons that they taught me. I mean, with Richard Fitzgerald, we were doing just crazy, crazy over-the-top houses. Mm-hmm. I was in Palm Beach three months of the year wow. doing enormous projects. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last projects I did with Richard, it was an older couple. It was a five-year project. They bought two houses on the ocean in Palm Beach. Each house was tens of millions of dollars, flattened them, and then built a 40,000-square-foot house on Holy top. Holy At a morning pool and an afternoon pool. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I was literally standing in the sand... <laughs> And then five years later, there was a house, right. and I got to be a part of that. It was just an incredible education. Yeah, because I can't even imagine, I mean, 40,000 square feet of residential interior design, I can't even imagine the amount of time and organization needed to accomplish that. I mean, how big was your team on a project like that? Was it just you and him, or? No, and then there was Kathy and Serena, so mm-hmm. there was four of us. Even still four. That's not very many people to do 40,000 square feet. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to manage. Yeah, and then where did you guys have to? How do the logistics work for that? Do you have well, we to get like Brown's a warehouse? Well, we used Brown's moving basically? storage down okay. in West Palm Beach, mm-hmm. and everything got shipped there. Right. And then did yeah. they catalog it basically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like that would be uh, extensive. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so and then after that, um, what? Did you do so you had an opportunity working for him to kind of start dabbling in photography so how did that happen actually that didn't happen there um what happened is we did a, a penthouse duplex at one charles street south mm-hmm. with woodmeister um we gutted it to this metal you know aluminum pipe um studs and when it was done woodmeister was very eager to get it published mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that you have to know about photography and Richard Fitzgerald is we never photographed anything. Mm-hmm. So for 13 years, we had these incredible projects that we just didn't photograph because it just wasn't important to him. Because he didn't need to be... It just wasn't him. It wasn't mm-hmm. important. Did his clients also just not like it? Because you know, A lot of them were private. Yeah. But it just never came up as a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, now with Celeste Cooper, she literally photographed everything that she did Mm -hmm. if if it was just one bathroom she would photograph she understood the the, how important it was to document the work Mm -hmm. and those were some of the most fun days being on shoots with her and and you know learning but then 13 years went by and i'd forgotten about it Mm -hmm. and so woodmeister hired a photographer to shoot the apartment i spent the day um, styling with the photographer and i actually emailed that photographer that night and said 
oh, that was a lot of fun. Can I work with you? Mm -hmm. Because we also knew at the time that Richard Fitzgerald was going to be closing the company. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to work for another design firm and I didn't want to go out on my own. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have aspirations to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we had that one photo shoot. Um, then the project got pitched to New England Home. They picked it up, but they wanted to reshoot it. Mm -hmm. And when they reshot it, they used the photographer that Celeste Cooper always had used. Oh, okay. And so everything just came back to me. And mm -hmm. I became the photographer's assistant's best friend that day. I just took everything. And it was the first day that I met Kyle Hopner. He produced the shoot. Mm -hmm. It was just like such a great day. And I just kept thinking, like, I could do this every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was this moment where we were in the master bedroom and the photographer had switched lenses and the camera wasn't recognizing the lens. Mm -hmm. He was having trouble and you could see he was getting really frustrated. And I just looked at him and I said, take the battery out of the camera and then put it back in, it will reset. Uh -huh. And it worked. And that's how my mind works. Like. Up to this point, I didn't own a real camera. Mm -hmm. I only had point-and-shoots. I'd never been in a darkroom, knew nothing about photography, didn't know the difference between shutter speed and aperture and ISO. I knew nothing. I still know none of that. <laughs> <laughs> and just me knowing that if you take the battery out, the, it's, you know, these things are computers. It's going to mm -hmm. reset. Like, how I knew that or why I knew to say that, I don't know, but that's how my brain works. Right, because instinct. constantly what I do every day is solve problems. Mm -hmm. There's always something to be solved or fixed. And I think that I excel at that because yeah. that's how my brain works. You, you and I are very similar in that way. I think that's why we, you know, get along among other reasons. But, <laughs> you know, we're both, I would say the same thing. Like half of my job is putting out fires and like finding creative ways to solve problems. And that's not a skill that everyone has, so. No, street smarts. Yeah. I don't have book smarts. I got street smarts. Well, street smarts are more important sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so after that shoot, um, I just decided that's what I was going to do. I bought a bunch of books. So wait, let me yes. stop you right there. Am so I back skipping then, ahead? no, I want. I just have a follow up question about that. So at that point, was he that photographer using digital photography? Yes. And then when. And he was originally Celeste Cooper's photographer. It was filmed like, then. Yeah, so that was my question. And that like, was always a At what point did it like, switch over? So, and I don't know. And is it way harder with film? Because you don't get immediate gratification. Like, you can't see exactly and then make adjustments. You, you couldn't photograph a house in less than two days with film. I see. Because you would need to develop it and it see. Just, you would mm -hmm. take numerous Polaroids in black and white. Mm -hmm. and the image would be upside down, mm -hmm. and you'd have to analyze, not even know that the colors are right, just more analyze what's in the frame, analyze mm -hmm. what you think the lighting is like. It, it took forever, and you would end up with, like, literally hundreds and hundreds of Polaroids at the mm -hmm. end of a shoot, and we would save them because they were fun to go back and look at. Mm -hmm. But it was night and day. Now, I don't know exactly, you know, when digital started to completely take over in the design publication world. Mm -hmm. I know that when I started, there were still photographers who were only shooting film. Okay. Who didn't believe in digital. You know, they were sort of, they just didn't think that this was going to be a thing. That Did this they was ever come happen. around? The one in particular <laughs> that I'm talking about 
it took him a long time. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's still purists today who still only believe well, in shooting Well, I wonder, too, film. if they just... It's like the same way when you have um, an architect who still hand drafts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't imagine that, even though I started hand drafting when I was 14. But, I mean, it's a skill and an, an art form in itself. But for production, it's terribly time-consuming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure film is very similar. I'm sure. I've never shot. <laughs> I've never shot a roll of film. I've never been in a dark room. Even in for more personal stuff or less no. photo shoot, not no. even for fun. No. Hmm. No desire to, or you just like the digital camera better. It's what I'm. Uh, no desire. It's what I'm comfortable with. Right. Because I'm self-taught. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I realize that I'm very set in my ways because it's the only way that I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, though. So how did you self-teach yourself? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of books. Yeah. I just read a ton of books, and I bought a a decent SLR camera, and I just started practicing in my house. But then what what really made it work is that I told Richard what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And we had about seven or eight months before the lease was up. And to his credit, he said, call up our clients. Tell them what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Go in the houses and practice. And for seven months, I was in these incredible homes, mm-hmm. just literally by myself, playing, mm-hmm. learning what works, what doesn't work, teaching myself how to do things, learning to look at light. And it took me a long, long time to really fine-tune how I see and what I see. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now you're exceptional. Like, I can't so. look at what I did then. <laughs> oh, because you're too critical. I've, I think I, everyone's I just, that way. Like, I mean, if you're... compositionally, I'm, I would say I'm consistent. Uh-huh. But the, the minutiae of, of, of color representation and light and all those sort of technical things... I was nowhere where I am now. Do you think that the evolution of especially design and style for interiors has also changed your perspective? You know, like the stuff you were shooting 10 years ago. Well, I have have several. This is a multi-pronged question. So (laughs) we'll start with the part that's easier. So do you think that when you look back on some of the stuff from, say, 10 years ago, you feel like it doesn't represent maybe where the interior trends are now and that bothers you? Or does that not... You think that doesn't bother me because where I was then... And, and so in the beginning, I was working with people like Michael Carter and Anthony Carafano, uh, Mr. Hodgins, who could, you know, to some degree could be called traditionalists. But what they're doing is still very high quality work mm-hmm. and, it, and, and it's timeless. So, you know, I think more traditional contemporary work shifts over the years mm-hmm. but when you do good traditional it's always good mm-hmm. it, that doesn't change so and that was going to be the second part of my question is is what do you think from like an interior design and photography perspective really is timeless like what if you were going to describe it in words leopard leopard <laughs> animal skin um no a nice big bear rug um, no not a nice big bear rug no 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 um it's it's more about the quality of the scale scale is everything in design Mm -hmm. and a good designer gets scale and you know pretty quickly the ones that do and 
that's what makes something timeless. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the quality of the design. It's not necessarily a certain pattern. You know, like wallpaper is has been and is really big lately. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of very traditional wallpapers that are being reimagined via their scale. Mm-hmm. So something that was small and ditty, like in the 80s, is mm-hmm. now being reimagined very large scale. Mm-hmm. And it's become kind of new again. Um, so those things evolve. Who do you think, aside from, say, the product developers of those say wallpapers we'll use that example like who's making those decisions about what's going to come back oh i don't know i know a lot of it's influenced by fashion right i mean we have designers who are coming out with furniture and fabric lines I know there's now. a lot lately so Even that's locally, influencing that's influencing design mm-hmm. i sometimes think that partly too that the availability of uh, having a social media and then having stuff being able to be produced, you can basically come up with, I mean, look at this podcast, like if we had an idea to do something and it's very easy now to accomplish something like this. Well, it's very easy to self-market. Yeah, well, and it's easy, like stuff is very available because you can get it and technologies kind of come along and you don't need to rent a sound booth to do it. You can do it with a Mac and a couple microphones and you know it's easier same thing with i imagine production like you can find people if you want to come up with a fabric line you can design it and find somebody to produce it for you Mm. i mean you have to just work hard i mean that's why there's a lot of self-published design books out there Mm -hmm. i mean it's very it's cost a lot of money but it's attainable you can have a book if you want have you thought about doing a book of all your work i did a book um last year to celebrate my 10 year anniversary oh no i remember this but Um, you didn't just but it was just it was just a gift right yeah yeah um it costs a lot of money Mm -hmm. i mean it's i don't understand necessarily how if someone self-publishes a book how they're making money other than maybe they get five ten dollars per book Mm -hmm. because the cost to print the book is exorbitant Mm mm-hmm I mean, my book costs over two hundred dollars to print. Per so, like, per what am I going to do? Right. Sell it for three hundred? No, right. nobody's going to buy it. Right. You know, <laughs> nobody's going to pay more than sixty dollars for it. Right. So. Do you think that people are just doing it to as another way to? It's another way to self market. And give maybe it feels an extra level of legitimate in some ways. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's move on to the next topic, if that's okay with you. Um, what do you, so we talked a little bit about like how you came about and how you, um, developed your skill for photography and you're mostly self-taught, although I would argue that your experience along the way is really what shaped your perspective now. Well, so like I've done all the electrical work in our house, Mm -hmm. all the plumbing, I've done all the wallpaper. Wow. I have, um, painted, you know, tented ceilings. I have done Greek key borders on floor and mm-hmm. but all of this is for me watching mm-hmm. like I'm I can watch somebody do something and just to a degree I can repeat it mm-hmm. because I can just kind of play the tape in my head of what I saw mm-hmm. and so to some degree to go back to what you're saying that's in photography too just watching people right and one paying being observant yeah right? So when you are going, so how do you start with an, any kind of client or project that you're going to do? Walk me through kind of what, like what the process is. 
Well, I like to scout mm -hmm. and visit. And the reason that is is because, you know, as a designer, you wouldn't build anything without a plan. So to me, to do a photo shoot without a plan is foolish. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it all comes down to time. You know, I'm paid by half a day or a full day. I'm not paid per image. Mm -hmm. And so if we get 30 shots in a day because we were prepared, as opposed to getting 10 because it's the first time I've been to the house and the designer wasn't prepared to bring all the right accessories and styling material, mm -hmm. then we only get 10 shots. Right. So I feel like it's important to give as much as I can in the beginning so that hopefully the designer will do their due diligence and do their homework mm -hmm. and come with what they need so that we were not running around looking for stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that is a very smart uh, process. I mean, like it. the night before a shoot, I study the scouting for at least an hour. Really? I don't think Like do when that. I come into a shoot, I've had conversations already with myself mm -hmm. about the angles and about the perspective and about you know maybe I'm gonna surprise someone and say that we have to rearrange the room because I've thought about this and it just doesn't work in the camera mm -hmm. so I'm so very that's a good prepared question, is what's the difference between walking through a space and how it looks in the camera because I think this is something a lot day. of people do not understand so the architecture is that immovable force you can't you cannot touch the architecture so the the, the camera placement is based on the architecture. I don't really care what's going on in the room because mm -hmm. that can all move. You know, the architecture is going to dictate the height of the camera, the position. There are elements in the architecture that I want in the frame, mm -hmm. and that's going to dictate that. From there, everything, everything is a moving target. Hmm. Is that sometimes hard to get across to interior designers no. who are very... No. They all get it. They all get it. Most of them do. Most of them. Yeah. Because because they've seen the scouting, mm -hmm. and so they've kind of realized, because in the scouting, I'm not moving the furniture. Right. So in the scouting, they're going to see, oh, you know, that chair looks really big in the frame. I wonder if we're going to move it further away from the camera, mm -hmm. or, or it doesn't feel like I can get over the back of the sofa. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we should move it or think about that. And oftentimes, these are conversations we have before. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Do you have ever work with people, maybe only once in this particular case, where you, the two of you are just really not on seeing the same thing or you're not on the same page? There are designers that I won't work with again. Mm -hmm. I have a blacklist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you spill. Yeah, if, if it's, I mean, it's such an intimate, personal relationship I mean we are in a house for eight hours normally right. we need to get along right <laughs> or it's not gonna work um, what about the ones you really like like is it because like what makes you really like a, a particular shoot or I like designers designer? that push me okay I like designers that give it to me because mm -hmm. I can give it back mm -hmm. and I like designers who think outside the box mm -hmm. and can kind of separate themselves from what maybe they've been going through for the last six months or two years. Mm -hmm. You know, you get all get so involved in mm -hmm. these projects, and by the time I get to them, sometimes you've lost what that inner spark was. And so I hope that I can give you the opportunity right. to get back to that place. I know what you mean. Like, 
if it was a, you if it was a struggle to get to the final product for whatever reason with the client, then you forget why you enjoy the project to begin with. I mean, That's it's really, like the butterflies nice are gone. Gift. The butterflies are gone. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're past the second date. <laughs> you know, and right. so we might be at the seven year itch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so I, and the, that's the other reason why I love to scout is, is I like to read the designer, kind of figure out from them what they got stuck with, mm-hmm. you know, did grandmother chandelier get oh. put in the dining room yeah. and because sometimes that can be a real roadblock for mm-hmm. the designer. That's all they see. Mm-hmm. And so if I know that, then I know already what I have to shoot around. Mm-hmm. And, and then I can give them the opportunity to start to make what they want, mm-hmm. to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my greatest joy is when I see it in their face that I know that I gave them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. For me, it's all about the emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about how the photograph makes you feel. And if it gives you what you put into it, mm-hmm. then to me it's worth all the effort. I mean, isn't that the kind of goal of any kind of photograph that's going to be published let's say is that they are trying to invoke an emotion in you know the person who's looking at it like in theory the people who create it should have the same emotion right right yeah so what about you get a lot of your stuff published um how do you go about doing that like what do you do to work on that or nurture that aspect of your career you have to get out there, you have to network, you have to, I have to be careful how what I say here, but so six or so years ago, I was having coffee with an art director and she was talking about how something fell through for the next issue and then you really needed something. And I had just scouted this project literally the day before. And so it was still on my computer and I showed it to her and within a week we were up shooting it and it was in the next issue. I mean, that turnaround time doesn't always happen. As you know, it can take years before something <laughs> gets printed. But again, it's just, you just have to make yourself available for these situations to happen because oftentimes they're just very organic. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion? And they, if the answer is no, that's fine too. But do you have an opinion about uh, architects and designers taking out ads in magazines and if that's a valuable way of getting new business? It depends. Um, <laughs> you don't have to answer. It's, you well, no, so this is funny. Um, if you look at most design publications, mm-hmm. I, I'm making up these numbers, but I would say 60% of the advertising is from builders. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, that amuses me because when you read most features, the builder, if they're lucky, has one line. Mm-hmm. And if they're lucky, gets credited in the back of the magazine. Mm-hmm. But yet, in the reality is, builders support magazines. They pay for them to run. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that advertising works. I think that it has to be very strategic. You know, if you take out one half-page ad a year... Mm-hmm. It's not going to make a difference. Right. You know, you have to be consistent with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you can only afford one half page ad, do it the whole year. Mm-hmm. You know, or make it a quarter page ad if that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's the consistency 
that is the building of your brand. Mm-hmm. You know, if you show up once, it's it's a waste yeah, of money. Right. It's a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of I've noticed like a lot of regular interior designers, you know, publish ads pretty often and um, also get features pretty often, but there's no correlation. At no, all. I, I actually didn't. There's, no, it's I wasn't complete separation insin- of church and state. That, but because um, I've seen certain designers who advertise all the time get turned down by those publications. Right, yeah. So I know for sure that there's no direct correlation. Mm-hmm. I've had designers say that to me. You know, you know, so-and-so never wants to publish me. Should I take out an ad? And no, it's not going to help you. <laughs> it's really not. How much money do I have to pay to get into a feature? <laughs> I mean, there are the pay-to-plays like Boston Design Guide and those magazines where, right. you know, yes, yeah, so you're paying to be in there. But... Mm-hmm. For the real editorial, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So how, do you know offhand how many editorials you've done? Like, do you have that number? I think I it's a no lot. I have no idea. I have no idea. I wish I knew that number. I could just surprise you right now. <laughs> 65. <laughs> I mean, I know that I have 38 covers. Yeah, that's a lot. Because um, I do keep track of that. Mm-hmm. What, did you know which magazine you've been on the cover the most? New England Home. Mm-hmm. I have seven. That's awesome. Yeah. So what do you think is going to be, do you see any kind of future, like what do you think the future of interior photography and architectural photography is? Do you think there's going to be a major shift or you think that, you know, it's going to be now that digital is here and it's so easy to do and produce, that's going to just be the status quo forever? Well, so social media has been probably the best thing that could have ever happened to a photographer Mm -hmm. because designers really understand that if they want to compete on a certain level, Mm -hmm. they need to continually produce professional-looking imagery. Mm -hmm. They can't do it themselves. And so social media in and of itself is a driving force for designers to document their work. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's a... It's a tough balancing act. Everybody wants to be published, but the lead times are just crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, a year, easily a year. Mm-hmm. And that's very frustrating for most people who are in this world where they just can press a button and immediately all of their followers can see what they did. Well, it's also because you have to sit on those photos for a long time. Yeah, so. well, that's a, that depends on who you talk to and whether mm-hmm. they're on the record or not. <laughs> you know, most... Regional publications are okay with you putting the images on your website. Mm-hmm. Just don't make it the you know the home page right. or the first project. Mm-hmm. You know, bury it a little bit, make it hard to find. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so much that you have it out there on your website. It's now that it's out there, nobody really knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Some blogger with five hundred thousand followers right, can come along and and pull it off and kill it mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah, we had that happen it's the other day. It's just you, you give up control once it's out there. And that's what the magazine's biggest fear is. It's mm-hmm. not you with, you know, say you have 500 people who go to your website. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the unknown. Yeah, no, I mean, the other day I was looking for a picture and I was just Google image searching. Not even our picture, like one of our pictures. It was, you know, white house with black windows. Something completely, uh, like, no big deal just to send something off. And... 
the third picture that came up was one from our website that a blogger had pulled off of our website, not credited us, not credited the photographer, mm-hmm. like just posted it. Like, yeah. here's a great example of this. I'm like, it's like you almost, you want to email them and be like, that's not really, you can't really do that. You know, these are Yeah, I don't, I struggle with designers who use social media as a platform to promote what they are inspired by. And then somewhere buried in the hashtag, it's, you know, mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that really bothers me. The worst, well, it's not the worst, but the craziest like? thing that ever happened was a designer was reverse Googling one of their photos. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there was an interior design firm in Australia who had this image as their homepage on their website, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, who's going to find out? And so I had to write them a cease and desist letter, and yeah. they took it off that day. But it's like, really? Seriously? You think you're well, not going to get caught? I think people think they can just use like stock photos. Like I had someone ask us the other day if our website was our work or mm-hmm. if they were stock photos. And I'm like, who is, there are who people is who doing do a website there with are people stock who do photos? I've had art galleries reach out to me and ask if they could buy photos because they like the room uh-huh. and then they would switch out the art and the photos with their oh, art yeah. and I'm like yeah no right <laughs> bye yeah good luck with that <laughs> so that I think most people don't know about so who actually when you take a picture who owns the picture whoever pressed the button mm-hmm. <laughs> really that's what it copyright is the owner is the person who pressed the shutter button mm-hmm. is that how it's written in the yeah that's copyright the copyright law, law. And then, so how does it work? So it's not my camera. Like, if I give you my camera and you take the picture, you own that picture. I don't own it anymore. Hmm. Like, so when I hold up art and I Mm -hmm. ask someone to take the picture, technically they own that picture, but not that you wouldn't want it with me in it. Right. (laughs) By the time you've taken yourself out. Yeah. Who knows? I might want it. Maybe that's a sculpture. I can tell someone. (laughs) (laughs) This is my sculpture of Michael Lee holding up a picture. (laughs) No, the. the person who pressed the shutter button is the copyright owner. Mm-hmm. Period. And so when a client uses the photo, they should properly credit you, right? It's every photographer's terms of usage is different. Mm-hmm. I require a credit in print. Mm-hmm. I would appreciate a credit in digital, but I'm not a stickler for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would like it. I would appreciate it because I'm really, really, really good at giving credit to other people. Mm-hmm. So I would expect it, but I'm not, I, I, I have a life. I'm not gonna call up every designer and say, oh, you put me on Instagram, you didn't credit me. <laughs> like, I have a life. Right. <laughs> I don't have time for that. So what, is there anything else that you think that we didn't cover or we should talk about? Um, I feel like I owe you an Oprah moment. Um. I've never told this story before publicly, and actually very few people know it at all. And it's an important story to tell because in many ways it sums up my respect, love, admiration for designers because the story can be told, frankly, about many of the designers who are my friends. I have been incredibly fortunate to have been taken in by many designers, to have been supported by them for many years. And I just feel that it's important to tell this 
my father, um, and I'll try to keep this as short as possible, my father left, or shall I say abandoned us when I was seven and my brother was five. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but for time's sake, we'll just leave it at that. When I was in my early 20s, my mother received a card addressed to me at her house, and it was from him. And my mother, being the woman that she is, and would never hide anything from me, she, she shared that. She forwarded that card to me. And that struck up a conversation between me and my father, who I hadn't spoken to in almost 20 years. Um, those conversations led to a discussion about me visiting him. He lived um, quite a distance away. Um, I would have to take time off from work. And I had just started the Cooper Group. I had maybe only been working there a month. And so I went into... Um, I told you this is going to be your Oprah moment. <laughs> I went in to talk to Celeste and tell her that I need to time off and to tell her why. And I told her the whole story. And I don't think I, 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 I got through the story without crying. I know I didn't get through the story without crying. And this, um, I will never forget. I, um, I'm sorry. At one point, she picked up her pocketbook and she rummaged around in it and she pulled out an American Express card and put it on her desk. And then she got out a pen and wrote a phone number on a piece of paper. She slid both of those across the desk towards me and she looked me straight in the eye and she said, if for any reason you need to get out of there, you call me at that phone number. Only my best friend, my daughter, my parents have that number. I will always answer it. And then you use this credit card to get out of there. I cannot... I cannot tell you how pivotal that was. Apart from me going and visiting him and saying goodbye, getting the opportunity to say goodbye on my terms. If she didn't do what she did, I don't think I ever would have had the courage to have even gone. And that is possibly the most important event for me because it allowed me to move forward. Because as I said in the beginning, I have been incredibly fortunate to have so many designers um, just have my back, for lack of a better word. Um, I have been incredibly, incredibly fortunate since I moved to Boston. Well, thank you for sharing that, Michael. I imagine that that was a very hard story for you to tell. Um, but I appreciate you being so open and honest with our listeners about your experiences. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. So thank you for coming. 
Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This podcast was sponsored by Hawthorne Builders. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Until next time.